Welcome to the Innovation Oz podcast, where we talk to Australia's business leaders about public policy affecting tech-based innovation, from ag tech to financial services to advanced manufacturing. If you're interested in new thinking to encourage new action in building Australia's economy in transition, tune in each week. I'm your host, James Riley. Hello, I'm James Riley from InnovationOz.com and welcome to the Innovation Oz podcast. I'm joined today by Dane Eldridge, the founder and chief executive of Formation Technologies based in Sydney, Surrey Hills. Dane leads a team of 80 plus designers, developers and UX specialists. I guess you'd say you operate in the digital transformation space for want of a better term. Welcome, Dane. Thank you very much. Good to be here. I'm just going to start by asking how's business? It's been a pretty funny 12 months, so... How's business for you guys? <laughs> yeah, I think it's uh, perhaps not the 12 months that many people would have chosen, but um, all, all things considered, pretty good. You know, very grateful to be in that combination of being both in technology and in Sydney. You know, I think if you could pick an industry and a place worldwide, this would pretty much be it. So yeah, COVID created some really mixed results for our clients last year. Some in the SaaS space went gangbusters, others in, in hospitality obviously got smashed. So, so yeah, pretty mixed, but we saw momentum really building in the last quarter of last year and in 2021 is just really ramping up and starting to build on that again, which is great. What about when you look across the landscape of your customer base, some companies, as you say, would have been in the perfect sector at the right time and things really took off. What about on some of your transformation projects? Are there some of your clients who are retooling their entire businesses and making those investments now? Yeah, I don't think many of them have sort of seen COVID and completely retooled. I think most of our clients were already on that journey, but I think COVID has probably accelerated it in most cases. And in a few cases, you know, a bunch of projects being put on hold last year just due to the uncertainty or, you know, cash flow concerns, that sort of thing. I think that's now shifted and they're all looking to go full steam ahead into 2021 and, and I guess with some urgency as well. Okay, now we're talking today about skills and the workforce of the future. I want to start with a discussion about some numbers produced in some AWS or Amazon Web Services research came out recently. Numbers are kind of staggering. We need 6.5 million more digital workers in Australia by 2025. (laughs) Seems like a big number and 2025 seems pretty close. Where are we going to find these people? Yeah, look, I think that number is going to be an absolute stretch. We might need that many, but uh, in terms of actually filling them, gee, I mean, yeah, I I can't see it happening. There's been a shortage of talent for many years now, unless there's some massive shift. I just don't see that number being coming close to being hit. So yeah, I I think there's, you know, lots of self-learning and on-the-job learning happening and and people transitioning into technology because the barriers aren't high, um, provided you're passionate about it. There's lots of online resources that can kind of help you get started. But unless, uh, yeah, I think without some major government program or intervention, you know, I just think we're going to be nowhere near that number. So it kind of raises an interesting point. Whose responsibility is it to equip the nation with these kinds of skills? Obviously, government has a responsibility for education in a broad sense, but, you know, some of these skills requirements are obviously post, you know, what you would consider education formative years. So what's industry, what's government, who plays the role here? Yeah, look, we always focus on the internal stuff, the things that we can control, right? Um, I, I think you can influence government, but you can control your own actions. So yeah, we focus on just having you know, learning and development programs in place for all of our team members so that they're a better, stronger person and developer in three months and six months than they were three or six months ago. And yeah, it's just a, a continual learning and growth and adaptation journey. 
But on the education front, yeah, I think the, the universities are certainly struggling. And uh, I really think maybe one opportunity, one major opportunity that the Australian government has at the moment is to import a whole bunch of tech talent. Australia's got this great reputation at the moment for being stable, for having a great environment, obviously being COVID safe. If we could import a whole bunch of tech talent who would be very attracted to that, I think that would go a long way to, to, to kind of upping that, that skills base. Yeah, it's a common theme or a common ask of government that we be allowed to bring in more technology talent. Obviously, the borders are closed. It's a little bit trickier right now. How have you managed just from that sense that finite pool has been drawn on in a big way? Yeah, I, I think last year there were a bunch of large companies, your Qantas's and the like, who did have a, a fairly significant development teams and there were a bunch of redundancies and, and you know not just in larger companies. So there was probably a bit of a pool of talent mid to late last year, and but that's starting to become a, a little bit slimmer now as, as you know, more and more jobs become available. I think there was a, a stat today just that the ads are now at their highest rate since uh, October 2018. So yeah, the demand for skills is certainly increasing, but there was a, a temporary period where there, there was quite a few people um, and good people available. So have you previously used immigration programs to meet your skills requirements? We have, yeah. And I think as a company, we wouldn't be where we are without it. Our preference is always to hire local talent. It's easier, it's cheaper, there's less hassle. Yeah, for a whole multitude of reasons, that's our preference. But we need to go where the talent is available. And, and um, yeah, the 457 visa, I'm not sure what that's called these days, but that's been super useful for us over the years in filling some of those critical tech roles that we couldn't source locally. So where are the gaps? Like when you're out searching for people, what kind of roles are the most difficult to fill? Yeah, at the moment, I think the demand is really for front-end developers. Um, that's kind of the hottest skill set, I, th- I think, at the moment for React developers. Any, anything in the JavaScript space, React, Vue, Node, there's, uh, there's, there's a lot of demand for that. So that, that's probably one key area. There's plenty of demand for really good UX and UI designers as well, that interface and, and user experience design side of things. And even just for great technical architects, those, those people that can you know, almost fill that CTO level experience in, in terms of architecting systems and helping develop a, a roadmap and that sort of thing. So there, there are a few of the roles that, that we're seeing a lot of demand for. Has the archetypal developer, the skill set that kind of makes up that body, has that changed over time? I'm, in my mind, when I was younger, you know, a developer would be in the background, seen, not heard. But these days, is there a changed role there? Like, the, does the developer have to actually be a front end to the discussion with the business? Or is that more part of a, a team? Yeah, look, I, I think definitely part of a team. I'm sure there are still companies that keep their developers in a, in a darkened room and, and um, bring them solutions just to kind of blindly execute. But they're not the ones that are really driving great innovation. Uh, I think the companies that do really well use developers as creative problem solvers and and actually get them involved in the problem definition space and and get them involved very early on because they can bring unique perspectives to to the design of a solution. So yeah, I I think that's definitely the direction that good companies are headed in with it and using those developers in areas where the company can really build a competitive advantage, those spaces where they can differentiate themselves, where they use those developers best. In terms of skill sets, yeah, it's definitely specialized over the years. So it's you know gone from you'd have a, a developer was a developer and they'd kind of do front end and back end and databases and QA and they'd write the scope and maybe even do some design on the front. These days, again, if you're trying to really compete and, and produce top-notch solutions, yeah, it's, it's more likely that you've got a, a cross-functional team with the best of each of those skill sets. 
So you were talking earlier about your own sort of internal training programs and making sure that your people are constantly refreshing and learning new things. I'm wondering if you look at the more formalized institutional education, are you finding that the graduates are coming out with the skills that are required or that they have a baseline on which to build? You know, how's that institutional training piece rating these days? Yeah, I think it's there's much less of a correlation between being a great developer and having a, a tertiary qualification like a uni degree than what there was in the past. That's definitely the case. We, we find great developers may or may not have a, a degree. I think most developers, when they come straight out of uni, they've got the foundational thinking skills, which will set them up really well long term, but not necessarily the practical hands-on skills to make them useful Immediately, there's a period of kind of becoming, I guess, commercially ready, which can take a little bit of time. So what does your recruitment process look like these days? I mean, it sounds like you don't necessarily go and bang on the doors of the university as a matter of course. They're just one source. So where are you finding people? Yeah, so from all sorts of different locations. So so whether it's Seek, LinkedIn, proactive reach outs, again, most great candidates are, are employed. So that proactive reach out is, is really important. Referrals are a great source as well. If you've got a great team, they often you know, have networks of other great people that they've either worked with before or, or that they've had contact with through other projects. So yeah, referrals are a really fantastic source. But I think in terms of recruitment process, you, you've got to have that, that great skills assessment in place. We use a, a sort of a practical timed test for every role, both technical and non-technical, to kind of weed out those who can do versus those who can talk the talk, but potentially not be able to execute in a, in a you know, really high performance way. So team augmentation, I think you're quite heavily involved in those themes around team augmentation. What are we talking about there? So team augmentation is where a company may have their own development team, their own existing team, but they lack a particular skill and they're finding it difficult to, to fill or they only need that skill for a particular period of time. So they might need someone for three months or six months or even 12 months but they know it's not necessarily a full-time, long-term hire. So they leverage a service like our team augmentation one where they can bring a team member in, add it to their existing team. They can manage it and control it, but they have that skill. And so that person can you know, add value immediately. You're looking for experienced people that absolutely hit the ground running who can also kind of contribute to process and culture and, and help, help your existing team evolve as well. I think the issue of culture is a really interesting one, particularly as development and transformation projects are driven by these multidisciplinary teams. So I want to, can you talk to me about how you infuse culture across your own organization? And then when you're working on behalf of clients, sometimes inside on client sites, whether as an individual within a team augmentation process or, you know, where they're simply customers, in which directions does culture flow and how do you kind of keep a tag on it? Yeah, so culture, I think, is something that's that's misunderstood. You know, culture for us is is about having you know a very defined set of values that we use for everything from hiring and selection through to decision making day to day, performance reviews, hiring and firing, even based on those values. And so I, I think the most important part of it is selection. If you get the wrong people and just try and hammer them into a particular culture or particular set of values. You can influence it, but it's you know, nearly impossible. You really need to be selecting the right people um, for those behaviours and for those, those attitudes in advance. So I think selection is far and away the most important part. But after that, it's, it's about reinforcement. So when you onboard the team, even when you're educating the candidate about what it's like to work here, giving them a really clear picture of how we use those values, what they are, so they can make an assessment as to whether it's a place they really want to work. 
And then once they're on board, it's, yeah, reinforcement. So having awards around people who are actually, you know, demonstrating and living those values and recognising the people who are, yeah, I guess really leading the charge in, in that area. So uh, it's, it's yeah, constant reinforcement and uh, and then actually using it for decision-making. Always use the example of um, Enron with their values of, you know, whatever it was, excellence and integrity and teamwork. They had these great values written down, but they were never actually lived. And so I think you've got to, walk the walk and, and lead by example in terms of those values. Well, I'm talking to Dane Eldridge, the founder and CEO of Formation Technologies. Look, I'm going to start winding up in just a moment. I wanted to finish up though by asking you, what is the, I'll leave it too open-ended saying, what does the future look like? But when we look at that AWS survey and the skills shortages that are, are clearly mapped out in that, when we look at an economic recovery that seems to be starting to take off, but there's no, no certainties in this environment, how do you look at the future? Are you, are you an optimist? Where are the opportunities? Yeah, eternal optimist. <laughs> I think there is genuinely an opportunity for Sydney and Australia to become a, a digital tech leader. There's some really green shoots and some great examples of companies that have gone global. You're Atlassians and Canvas and that sort of thing. But I think the, the foundations are, are kind of there. I think we just need to push harder in that direction, to be honest. And um, yeah, I, I think that it's a, it's a great environment and a great place to be. So I'm, I'm yeah, I'm very positive about, uh, about what the, the future for tech in, in Australia and Sydney in particular looks like. Look, I'll, I'll uh, have one other thing I suppose I need to ask you about, government policy and performance in that regard. You're based in Surrey Hills, right? You know, basically at the, at the heart of um, this new tech central program that, uh, or precinct that the New South Wales government's rolling out. What's government doing both at a state and federal level that's been either really helpful to you or what do you think that kind of does show particular interest in this area that we're in? Yeah, I think a few years back, there was real hope around the R&D tax incentive. I thought that was, uh, you know, potentially really good. But, you know, what we encountered was that the definition of what qualifies from a software perspective was really unclear. Anecdotally, we heard a lot of companies were receiving the incentive for many years that didn't technically meet the definition. And the percentage that brokers and advisors were taking to, to help companies put together their claims was, was massive. So I think both of those things kind of suggest it's just not optimal in its current form. So, yeah, it'd be great to see them clarify what that definition is so that it applies to software companies and, and encourages genuine tech innovation. I think the stats are there that um, there's massive return for the economy when they do that. But uh, yeah, at the moment, it's uh, it's a bit of a gray area. And um, I think lots of projects that probably should qualify don't technically qualify under the, under the current definitions. And the outlook specifically for formation technologies, will you be adding staff in the next 12 months? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, we've got a number of roles available at the moment and, um, and expecting yeah, significant growth in the, in the next yeah, few months and years. That's what we like to see, a tech-based recovery. All right, Dane Eldridge from Formation Technologies, thanks very much for joining us today. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Innovation Oz podcast. Please like, subscribe and leave a five-star review wherever you heard us. And please go over to our website, innovationoz.com. Check out our recent stories on tech, innovation and policy. Or follow us up on social media to ask any questions or be a guest on the show. Until next time, this is Innovation Oz wishing you a great week ahead.